I personally prefer to have the wire because I don't communicate as rapidly as I communicate with myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So that sometimes is the difference between getting in and not. And I also like the tactile sensation of um, managing the wire and understanding how to find the path forward. And whether you're up against a a very firm pancreatic duct stone, or if it's a tumor that you're trying to wiggle your way through, I like having that tactile sensation to determine how, how hard I need to push or how I can get a loop in to provide more safety and things like that. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Endocast. I'm your host, Leslie Bishop, and this is episode 22 with our physician guest, Dr. Jennifer Marinke from Penn State Hershey Medical Center. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Moranke, welcome to Endocast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited that you took a little time out of DDW to come chat. My pleasure. So before we get into the clinical stuff, I'm sure our audience would love just to learn a little bit about your background. So can you tell us, how did you get into medicine? Why did you decide GI? And maybe even why therapeutic GI? Sure. So my road into medicine, you know, I really can't remember when I envisioned myself as a physician, but it was just something that I think was always inside of me. And then during medical school, I was initially drawn to the oncology sector, you know, patients with cancer, patients who were getting chemotherapy. Part of this was because during medical school, we rotated at a specialized cancer center. And I really felt like I bonded with those patients, and those were a patient population I really wanted to take care of. I did have an enlightening event that really changed the course of my life. As a medical student, I had a patient with obstructive jaundice who had a pancreatic mass. And as a medical student, I had some time on my hands. So my resident, you know, suggested that I go to the endoscopy unit to see what procedures this patient was going to undergo for diagnosis and treatment of the biliary obstruction. And that was the first time that I saw an endoscopic ultrasound with fine needle aspiration, followed by an ERCP with metal stent placement in a severely obstructed duct. And at that point, it was just a light bulb went off for me that this was a field that I could have a start and a finish, have technical expertise in, but still care for that cancer population. And so that's what really drew me into GI and therapeutic endoscopy specifically. Oh, that's amazing. It was like a, it was like a mind blow moment. It really was. And after all these years, that is still my North Star almost. It's still my favorite procedure. It's still my favorite type of patient, even though they're in dire circumstances. But I I really enjoy taking care of that patient population and doing that type of procedure. Do you even remember, like you remember the patient's name and the doctor doing the procedure? Do you remember, is it that clear of a memory to you? Well, I remember where I was standing in the room. I remember the physician and he ultimately became a mentor to me. And then I later worked with him uh, as a junior faculty member at Temple University after finishing my fellowship at UVA. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Wahoo wah, by the way. Yeah. Wahoo wah. I don't remember when we talked before, you told me you went to UVA. What was, was that medical school? No, it was actually, I spent four years for my GI fellowship at UVA. Okay. I had previously spent a long time in Philadelphia. I had completed my college degree at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was an anthropology major. 
And that actually segued into medicine, believe it or not, and actually afforded me a number of opportunities that improved my odds of getting into medical school. By being an anthropology major? Yeah. So I discovered <laughs> I discovered anthropology during my first year of college. I was taking all of the pre-med requisites, but there was no pre-med major, which was, which was fortunate because it forced you to find something else that you're interested in. And I ended up taking a cultural anthropology class at the Penn Museum and really was intrigued by the whole thing. And I was really hooked on uh, anthropology. And it actually, I, I decided to become an anthropology major. And during my four years at Penn, I had a, a work study job with one of the archeologists who was a metallurgist specialist. And he had excavated, he'd done excavations in Iron Age Thailand and had a lot of artifacts that I was sorting through. And then as I was a senior anthropology major, I needed to do a research project. And he was really generous. He was like, I have all these bones. You know, is there something you can do with these bones? And I did a trace element analysis trying to determine if the people who live there uh, ate more of a vegetarian or a meat-based diet. And so it was a great opportunity. I was able to get a grant from uh, the University of Pennsylvania to do that and, and had a research award as well. And so that ultimately, those credentials, I think, ultimately helped me get a spot in medical school. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So I, I still go to the University of Pennsylvania Museum. My uh, kids and husband and I uh, just recently went a few, a few months ago to see the Egyptian section. And my daughter was like, is this an actual mummy? I was like, yeah, it is an actual mummy. So it's still close to my heart. I'd love to hear more about mentorship. So have you had a lot of mentors who have sort of pulled you along the way and really helped you? Absolutely. I've had mentors and sponsors, even from sources that you would not expect. So I was fortunate enough to have allies during my fellowship who advocated for me and encouraged me to do certain things. They advised me on jobs and things to look for in my first job. And I was really fortunate to have, during my first job, work in a very supportive environment with a senior endoscopist who helped my endoscopy skills grow and also pushed me to learn more. And that was really formative for me. Uh, it gave me a lot more confidence and I'm forever grateful for that experience. When I changed jobs from Temple to Penn State, I joined a group of five other advanced endoscopists. And so I, I really also feel very supportive, supported and uh, feel that it's a, it's a great environment to continue to enhance your skills and to continue to provide great care for our patients. Okay. You mentioned mentor, sponsor, and ally. How do you, those are different, I guess. They are. I think a mentor is someone who spends more time with you on a day-to-day -day basis okay. and can offer you opportunities or guidance. Whereas a sponsor, I think, is someone who really gives you opportunities and spreads the word about you and how about how great you are because a sponsor is usually in a more senior position and has access to other opportunities. And so a sponsor is someone who, in my mind, vouches for you and gives you opportunities. Okay, so the sponsor is like top tier. I think so. Okay. And then is ally a little bit below the mentor? I don't know that there's necessarily okay. a hierarchy, but I think that our allies come in many you know, shapes and forms. And uh, I've had lots of allies, both female and male, uh, advanced endoscopists and other types of gastroenterologists, as well as other people in medicine. It's great to have that kind of partnership with those people and have the support of allies to really spread the word of not only initiatives that you might be interested in pursuing or other avenues for advancement. So talk to me now about your clinical practice. What does that look like? What's the focus? I do a variety of advanced endoscopy procedures, mainly pancreatic biliary, but also 
also esophageal work, Barrett's dysplasia, gastric and colon EMR. We do a lot of that as well. But my first love is still endoscopic ultrasound and ERCP. All right, well then let's transition to ERCP then. That's been around, you know, 50 years or so. How do you see the changes that have happened in ERCP? Clearly, we have advanced in our technology. The scopes have become more sophisticated as well as the tools. I think that ERCP has evolved and become a much more therapeutic technique compared to diagnostic as it was in its original form. However, I think that the combination of endoscopic ultrasound in conjunction with ERCP is also pushing some of our ERCP techniques to the next level. I think that there's been a number of key innovations in standard ERCP, including high-performing guide wires, a short wire system that's allowed the endoscopist to control the wire and also lock the wire. So that can sometimes minimize the the risk of losing access and also can minimize the use of radiation or fluoroscopy so that our patient and the the people who are taking care of that patient are exposed minimally to to radiation. Talk to me about that, the short wire. So it sounds like you control your own guide wire. I trained at a place that used short wire and long wire, and I kind of adopted my own system. At my first institution, it really was a short wire shop. And so I was able to gain the skill of working the wire myself pretty rapidly given the, the foundation during my fellowship that I had had. And I personally prefer to have the wire because I don't communicate as rapidly as I communicate with myself. <laughs> uh, That's right. Nice. So that sometimes is the difference between getting in and not. And I also like the tactile sen- sensation of um, managing the wire and understanding how to find the path forward and whether you're up against a, a very firm pancreatic duct stone or if it's a tumor that you're trying to wiggle your way through. I like having that tactile sensation to determine how, how hard I need to push or how I can get a loop in to provide more safety and things like that. Okay, that probably leads us. What, what tips do you have for, for cannulation? I tend to have an algorithm. I always start with my favorite tome. I use a 4.4 French strippable tome, it's a short wire tome, and I use a a high functioning 0.025 inch guide wire that has the pushable the pushability of a 035 core. I like that combination to start with a with the native papilla. I usually start with a straight wire. That's just how I start things out. But if I am unable to cannulate with that, then my next step is to change to an angled wire because sometimes I can, that will help facilitate loop formation and I can push through uh, or help find the way, not only through the papilla, but through whatever stricture in a safe way with that shepherd's hook leading the way. Yeah. And then, you know, further down in my algorithm, you know, I try to make sure that I am maintaining my position underneath the papilla. I also use my fluoroscopy position to determine how cephalad I need to get my tome and my wire because I have a sense in my mind of where the biliary duct, the bile duct or the pancreatic duct are located. And depending on which duct I'm trying to aim for, I use my fluoroscopic position to help guide me that way as well. And then what about maintaining access? What are your best practices for that? Scope position is paramount. I want to make sure that I'm in a secure position. Even if uh, if the nurse has gotten access for me and we're up into the biliary tree where I'd like to be, I use the benefits of the short wire system to strip the wire and I lock the wire. And then that way we only are using, you know, doing short exchanges. And I find that I have less less likelihood of losing the wire. This is especially true when I'm doing hyalur cases and I've been able to access a, a segment that wasn't previously accessed. The last thing I want to do is inject that segment and then not be able to 
drain it by losing access. So it's really important for me in those instances to use an instrument that is that can uh, be a short wire system. And then let's talk about complications. So what are you doing to prevent post-procedure complications, like, for example, po- pancreatitis? Sure. So there's been a lot of data about this. I think one of the first things that I, I try to do as long as the patient does not have a contraindication, I try to give a lot of IV fluids, uh, particularly lactated ringer solution. A higher amount of IV hydration has been shown in some in some studies to decrease the risk. For native papilla, I give 100 milligrams of rectal indomethacin, unless there's a contraindication, and for anyone who I deem to be high risk. This is a little bit controversial because the ESGE guidelines had come out uh, with rectal indomethacin for everyone, and our new uh, guidelines are also recommending it. I find that if I think of it, I give it, um, and certainly for all native papillas, I give rectal indomethacin. I have a low threshold if I am aiming for the bile duct, but unfortunately get into the pancreatic duct. If my wire is seated pretty well, there, I have a low threshold for reaching for a second wire and using that second wire to show me where the pancreatic duct is. And then I can use that fluoroscopically to guide me in a more cephalad approach to hit the bile duct. That wire in the pancreatic duct also helps straighten out and kind of um, prevents the papilla from being crushed a little bit by the the tome or some of the tools or some of the pressure that we're applying on, on the papilla. And so I really like that approach. Depending on if the pancreatic duct was injected and some of the high-risk features of the patient, I may place a pancreatic duct stent at that point and then finish the procedure. And then when you're dealing with stones, how are you determining if you're going to use a balloon or a basket or a laser or each? How are you deciding that? The first thing I do, we frequently get referrals for removing large bile duct stones. And I think that my, my first approach, if the anatomy is favorable, is to do balloon dilation of the papilla after a modest sphincterotomy. I think that that's a, a very simple technique that's been proven to be safe and it's very effective. That's kind of my, uh, my first choice in removing large stones. If for some reason there are strictures or the stones are above areas that there's no advantage to doing balloon dilation of the papilla, then I will oftentimes use single operator cholangioscopy and use electrohydraulic lithotripsy. We don't have access to laser in our institution, and so we have had pretty good success with EHL. Okay, and then what about multiple stones in the duct? So this comes up not infrequently. Uh, my approach is to go one by one, right? And so I always try to position, I try to identify where the stones are and position my retrieval balloon in between the the bottommost stone and the next stone so that I, I can go through one by one. I think if we get greedy, they all end up piling up and then we can't get any of them out. They end up impacted against the ampulla. And so my approach is to go one by one. Okay. All right. Let's move over to strictures. When you have a stricture, how do you decide what stent to use, whether it's plastic or metal or covered or all of that? It's a case-by-case basis. It depends on the etiology of the stricture. The ACG just recently published guidelines on management of biliary strictures, so that's a good reference. But for my practice, I, if I have a malignancy, so if I have a, uh, a pancreatic cancer causing the stricture, I will place a metal stent at the time of the index ERCP. In terms of whether or not it's a fully covered or an uncovered stent, I don't, we don't have partially covered stents in our unit. I tend to place a fully covered stent if there's an absence of a gallbladder. Even though the data isn't, isn't fully in support of this, I am a little bit concerned. And I have had anecdotal cases happen to me where I've placed fully covered stents with resulting cholecystitis. Whether yeah. that was because the, of the fully covered stent or if it was because of the natural you know, process of the disease, it remains to be seen. But I tend to use a, an uncovered stent in, in patients who have an intact gallbladder, and if I, especially if I can't define where the cystic takeoff is. 
Okay. And then what about uh, biliary RFA? Are you using Habib? And if so, how's that used in your practice? Right. So we uh, also use Habib for treatment of both distal biliary strictures as well as more proximal biliary strictures, usually cholangiocarcinoma. We don't necessarily follow a protocol. A lot of it is dependent on the patient. However, we have had success with using RFA uh, either intrahepatically or extrahepatically, followed by uh, plastic stent placement. We've also been using metal stents after the initial RFA treatments. I have had some uh, situations where due to tumor ingrowth, I've had to place a second metal stent. We, again, have had no problems using biliary RFA, especially distally. And then a little bit of a change, but just with fellowship programs, there's been lots of I mean, years and years of training. I'm curious how you've seen that change and how you maybe see that changing in the future. The increase in number of advanced endoscopy fellowship positions in the United States has really shifted general GI training away from pancreatic biliary work during a general GI fellowship. And I think that about, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it was very common to have uh, fellows trained for ERCP in, you know, within the first three years of their fellowship. But now things are shifting, and I feel that most of the ERCPists that are coming out now have done an advanced endoscopy year. Okay, very interesting. All right, well, I wanted to turn it over to you if you had anything else, because this has been awesome. If you had any closing thoughts. I'm so thankful for endoscopy and all of the technologies that have evolved over the years. I'm uh, honored to be part of this profession and, and do what we do and really try to help people's lives. And this is, and, and I feel very fortunate because advanced endoscopy was the right combination for me and my personality to really sustain my interest in, in medicine and to really sustain my career. So I'm grateful for that. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on today. Yep. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Endocast. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit our virtual education platform, Educare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E dot bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every case or patient. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote or encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. Thank you.